This morning we turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll be reading verses 13 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Regarding the heroes of the faith, the writer says there in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it were, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As we know by now, the writer in this chapter is elaborating on the importance of faith. And we have here in Hebrews chapter 11 what many have referred to as the Westminster Abbey of the heroes of the faith. So far, we have seen in this book what we could describe as the utility of faith. It is through faith, according to verse 3, that we understand our world because by faith we understand, the writer says, that the world was created by God. It is through faith that we worship God acceptably, as seen in the case of Abel, verse 4. By faith we know what it is to walk with God in an ungodly world, as seen in Enoch, verse 5. In Noah, we see the faith by which we come into a saving relationship with God, saving favor with God. In Abraham, we see faith that enables us to venture into the unknown. And in Abraham, we see this faith that enables us to venture into the unknown. I hope I haven't missed anything. What we are considering this morning is the life of faith. And the question is, what does the life of faith look like? We have seen the utility of faith, the importance of faith, the use to which faith is put, how important faith is in our Christian life, but what does the life of faith look like? And the first thing we note from this passage, we have a few points to make, is this, that the life of faith persists unto death. There's a line in the hymn we have just sung, and I could have virtually borrowed part of that line, and to say this, that faith triumphs even in death. Faith persists unto death. The life of faith persists unto death. Notice what he says there in the A part of verse 13. These all died in faith. Reading these words, we get a totally different picture from some groups in our time who believe that as long as you have faith in God, then you're not supposed to get sick. And by 
implication you're not supposed to die. Yet these heroes of the faith, even in death, had faith in God. Not only did these individuals listen in this chapter live by faith, they died in faith. In fact, as verse 37 indicates, some even died for the faith. And that these people died in the faith speaks of two things. It speaks, number one, of the tenacity of their faith, as well it attests to the authenticity of their faith. For by their sustained faith in God and his promises, they demonstrate that their relationship with God was the be-all and end-all of their existence. They died in faith, and that was how they lived. And for them, faith in God, faith in the word of God, was all that matters. Here is a pertinent question for us by way of challenge. Could it be said of us at the end of our lives that we died in faith? Could it be said of us that we have been known throughout our lives as people of faith and that faith by which we were known, we took even to the last minute when we drew our final breath. These people died in faith, underscoring the point that the life of faith is a life that persists even in death. Secondly, we notice from this passage that the life of faith is undaunted by the seemingly unfulfilled promises of God. The life of faith is undaunted by the seemingly unfulfilled promises of God. Beloved, the life of faith, we would say, is not phased, is not floored by what appears to be unanswered prayers. It is not frustrated by what some regard as dashed hopes, as the silence of God regarding what he has promised. Notice what the author says there in, the, in verse 13 regarding the heroes of the faith. He says this, very important, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Let me say, my friends, here we learn something concerning the nature of true faith in God, which is that true faith in God does not, does not assess the truth and trustworthiness of God's promises based on their fulfillment in time. That is to say, based on their coming to pass on this side eternity. And may, may I just stop here to say this? If you notice what is said there in verse 13 concerning these heroes of the faith, they all died in faith not having received the things promised. And may I suggest to you that some of our greatest hopes, some of our strongest prayers, some of our greatest wishes and aspirations may never be fulfilled on this side eternity. It means then that there are some illnesses which perhaps we might have to take with us to the grave. That is a very sobering thought, and yet it is one to which we must habituate our mind because the truth is, it is not every prayer that God answers on this side eternity. Here it was, these heroes of the faith believed God, they persisted in faith even until death, and even at the point of their death, they did not receive the things that were promised them by God. True faith does not assess the truth and trustworthiness of God's promises based on their fulfillment in time. 
And in addition to that, I'd say this, that true faith does not put God in a time box, demanding that he comes through for us at such and such a time according to our timetable. True faith does not dictate to God as to how and when he should work, whether with respect to what he has promised or with respect to what we have prayed for. True faith waits on God. True God-honoring faith, we would say, resigns itself to the will of God regarding his timing to act on his word. Very, very important that we get that. Patient before God, true faith is persistent. It is persevering in believing God even when the answers to prayers are not seen, even when hopes are not realized, true faith in God will persist right through until one's death. Now, regarding these Old Testament heroes of the faith, verse 16 tells us that whereas they did not receive the things that were promised them in their lifetime, notice what the text says, they saw them and greeted them, from afar. They did not receive the things that were promised, but yet they saw them. How did they see them? They saw them not with the eyes of flesh, but with the eye of faith. They saw them and greeted them from afar. The idea here is this, that they joyfully welcomed and embraced those promises as though they were already realized, as though they had already received them. And why could they have done that? Why could they have rejoiced in and embraced those promises as though they had already received them? Why? Because they knew the one in whom they had believed. They knew that the one whom they had believed, in whom they had believed, the one in whom they had trusted, is the God who cannot lie, is the God who never goes back on his word, is the God who is faithful and true to all that he has promised. Indeed, not one of all his precious promises has ever failed, the word of God tells us. And so a second truth I'd like to see then concerning the nature of true faith in God is this, that true faith in God heartily and joyfully embraces the promises of God as though they were already fulfilled. Even when to human reckoning, the fulfillment of those promises seemed distant or even doubtful. You know, the Apostle Peter relates this mindset of joyfully embracing unseen realities, realities that have not yet been fulfilled. He relates this mindset to the matter of the believer's love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. And he was writing to Christians who were smarting under harsh, bitter persecutions and trials. Here's what Peter says to them, verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, that is Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. What is Peter saying there? Peter is saying here that the posture of faith, the mental attitude of faith, the mindset of faith is of such that it can, by faith, 
see the unseen, see that which is distant, see that which is not yet realized, and joyfully embrace it as though it were already realized. We do not see our Lord Jesus, and yet we love him. That is the posture of faith. That is the mindset of true faith in God. True faith awaits the fulfillment of the promises of God. Though the fulfillment of those promises may be long in coming, faith joyfully reckons them as having come true. And how we very much need in our day-to-day living this kind of mental attitude, this kind of faith where we can firmly trust God, we can firmly believe in God even in the absence of feelings, even in the absence of signs that God is at work, that he is active and that he is present. At the end of the day, such is the kind of faith that will keep us focused, grounded, guarding us from discouragement, guarding us from despair, how we need such a, such a faith, a faith which even in present crisis, a faith which even in present distresses can see from afar what God is ultimately going to do. What with all the prevailing chaos, the contradictions of our time, many a believer is often tempted to doubt the word of God, to doubt whether God is in control of the world and whether God will consummate this world just as he has promised. True faith in God looks beyond the present circumstances and joyfully embraces what God has in store for the future. The life of faith, then, we see from our text, persists until death. It triumphs in death. The life of faith is undaunted by the seemingly unfulfilled promises of God. And then thirdly, here's what we see from our passage. The life of faith affirms an afterlife existence. The life of faith affirms an afterlife existence. Now, here's what we need to bear in mind. This idea that beyond death, there is life. This truth that beyond death, there is is life, is not a teaching that is confined to the New Testament. The Old Testament saints clearly believe that this world was not all that there is to life. They believed in the reality of heaven. How do we know that? Because they believed, Psalm 49 verse 15, that God would ransom them from the power of Sheol and receive them. Indeed, receive them to glory as Psalm 73 and verse 24 tells us. Among the reasons why the people of faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, were able to press and persevere against trials, against the most severe persecutions, was the prospect of a better life to come. In fact, here's what the writer says in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. True faith reckons 
on the truth of the word of God that there is life after death, indeed a far better life after death. Don't we hear that in the Apostle Paul? Paul is in a quandary between two options, whether he should he desires to remain alive so that he can be a blessing to the Philippian Christians or depart and be with Christ, which, is, which he says is far better. You see, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 teaches that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. We know we are going to die, and the truth is, even among non-Christian peoples, even among non-Christian societies, there's a notion that there is, a, there is life beyond the grave in one place or another. And the point is, beloved, God has put in the hearts of his people a hope and longing for heaven. Second Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then are we of most of all men most miserable. And the fact that the writer of the Hebrews speaks of the heroes of the faith as desiring a better country, a heavenly one, according to the A part of verse 16, clearly suggests that they recognized the incompleteness, the insufficiency of life here in this world. There is a life to come. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And the life of faith joyfully embraces the prospect of being with Christ in heaven. Fourthly, the life of faith, according to a text, involves residing as strangers and exiles in the world. The life of faith involves residing as strangers and exiles in this world. Now you'll find in both the Old and New Testaments, the people of God are clearly understood to be this, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's our identity. If you are saved, that's how the Bible Regards you. That's how we are in the world. We are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We are exiles. That is why in Genesis 47 verse 9, Joseph could, uh, Jacob rather could say to Pharaoh, when Pharaoh asked him his age, he said this to Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 47 verse 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. The psalmist in Psalm 39 and verse 12 prayed, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. What about the New Testament? Here the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. Peter is writing and he says to his readers, he tells them to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exiles. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11, he says, I beseech you as strangers and as pilgrims. 
And here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 14, the writer will in fact say to his readers, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now let me say this. The fact that the world is hostile to Christ and his followers further underscores the truth of the word of God that we, his followers, those of us who name the name of Christ, are indeed strangers in this world and to this world. Abel, the first to be persecuted, the first to be persecuted, the first martyr of the faith. Enoch and Noah, whose life and preaching were, were, had no place among the people of the world, the ungodly people of the world, all attest to the fact, attest to this fact, that not being welcomed in the world, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus in John 15, verses 18 and 19, again underscoring this idea that you and I are strangers in this world. He says there, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world what hates you. We're strangers. We are exiles in this world, and the life of faith demands that we understand ourselves as strangers, as those who do not belong. In fact, if somebody were to ask, do you believe in aliens? I would readily raise my hand and say, look, you're looking at one. The word of God says we don't belong here. We are citizens, in fact the word of God categorically asserts that we are citizens of another world for our conversation, our citizenship, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Along this line, our Lord Jesus could say of his disciples in John 17 and verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he repeats in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then that the life of faith involves residing as strangers and as exiles in the word of God in, in the world is clear from the word of God that demands that we be different and distinct from the world. First of all, the word of God teaches that we are not to be consumed with the world. We are not to be consumed with the world. Here the apostle John in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. 
against such preoccupation with the world, the summons of the word of God to us as Christians in First, in, in, in first John 2, 15-17 is just that. And then in demanding that we be distinct and different from the world, the word of God teaches, secondly, that we are not to be conformed to the world. We are not to be consumed with the world, and we are not to be conformed to the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I want us to notice here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and this is very, very important. When we talk about ourselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, as strangers and exiles in this world, here is what we must understand from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Notice the reason Paul cites as to why the Christian should adopt a nonconformist stance toward the world. The Christian needs to adopt a stance of nonconformity to the world so as to be able to have a clear grasp, a clear grasp, a clear perception of that which accords with the mind and purpose of God. Now, we live in a world, and it goes without saying, a world that is ungodly. And there's a great battle on, the great battle not for so much our bodies yes the battle is there but the battle more so for what our minds our minds paul is saying here we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might be able to discern the good acceptable perfect will of god now why is that important why is that so critical? And here's the point. It is critical because the world has a totally different spin on what constitutes right and wrong, good and evil. According to the thinking of the world, there are no moral absolutes. There's no right, there's no wrong, Good and evil are simply what the individual makes of these concepts. So the world will say this then, that if it works for you, if it makes you happy, if it feels good, then that's good for you. Go ahead and do it. You see what, what the world said? The world says, listen, what is important, what is true, what is good, is what works for you, is what makes you happy. And we know, beloved, based on the word of God, that such thought, such mindset is dishonoring and displeasing to God. Why? Because what matters first and foremost is not how you feel and how I feel or what I think or what you feel about what is wrong, what is right, but about how God sees things. It is all about what God in his word says that we need our minds to be transformed, beloved, in these days from a worldly mentality into a heavenly mentality. You know, it has been said that some people are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. We could switch that around to say this. There are many professing Christians who are so earthly minded, they are no heavenly good. 
And uh, the, the word of God is serious on this. The word of God is serious on this. To the extent that you and I are going to live godly in this world, we have to be different. Different in our taste, different in our values, different in our attitude, different in our mindset. We need to be different from the world. And how are we going to do that? By recognizing our status as strangers in this world, that we don't belong. Yes, we have our responsibility in this world. We have our responsibilities to pay our taxes, to be decent citizens. We're not going to be troublemakers. We're not going to be some kind of weird recluse. We're not going to be like some spooky type. What's wrong with these people? But here's what the Bible says. We have to hold to this firmly, that our values have to be different. Why? Because we are a different people. We are strangers. So this brings us to a fifth point, a crucial point in our text, which is this, that the life of faith assumes a mindset of closure and finality with respect to the world. Let me say that again. The life of faith assumes a mindset of closure and finality with respect to the world. Look at verse 15. Notice regarding the heroes of the faith, what the writer notes. The writer notes this. He says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, that word thinking as used there, um, based on the original, literally means this, remembering. If they kept on remembering, that is to say, if they kept on, if it were the case that they had kept on actively recalling their homeland, then they would have had opportunity to return. Think of that statement for a minute. What does that imply? If they had been thinking, if they had been musing on that land from which they came, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been thinking constantly on their homeland, then they would have had opportunity to return. Here's the point I'm making. Implied here in verse 15 is the truth that what we spend our time thinking on, what we spend our time musing on, will inevitably dictate the bent and direction of our lives. What we spend our time thinking on will inevitably dictate the bent and direction of our lives. If we keep on focusing on the world, if we keep on focusing on that which is tempting, if we keep on focusing on that which is alluring, then it won't be long before we begin to fraternize with the world. It won't be long before we begin to think like the world. And here's the truth. Tempting thoughts, cherished and mused on have a way of being presented with opportunity for their expression. Tempting thoughts mused on have a way, an uncanny way, a strange way of presenting, being presented with the right time, with the right set of circumstances, with the right opportunity to give expression to those thoughts. 
In his book, The Dynamics of Faithful Christian Living, Gary Code makes this sobering point. He says this, quote, We will slip back into the culture around us if we spend too much time thinking about the world we left to become part of the kingdom of God. If we do look back and focus our minds on the world that we have left, we will tend to neutralize our effectiveness and gradually be brought back into conformity to it. Go back to Romans chapter 12. You can see why he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Here's what the writer of the Hebrew says. If those patriarchs, if those heroes of the faith had been thinking, that is, if they, had, if they kept on recalling, actively recalling, remembering the land from which they came, then they would have had opportunity to return. What we think on, the more we think on it, it's the stronger the temptation becomes, it's the stronger the suggestion becomes. And here is what Gary Kuhn con- continues to say. He adds, he says this, Quote, to initially escape the shackles of the world's mentality does not guarantee we will continue to escape them. We have to be careful since simply being Christians does not guarantee that we'll be enslaved, will not be enslaved. Again, a life of faith has to deal with this type of temptation and approach it head on. Now, let me give you my take on it. and I'm going to encapsulate what he says here. To make this point, suggested here, beloved, is the ever-present, continual danger the Christian faces as regards returning to the world he or she had formerly left. What's the relevance of this? That's precisely what the writer was addressing in the book of Hebrews. Because remember what we said, these Christians... Some of them, these professing Christians, some of them were on the verge of turning from Christ, returning to Judaism. And the point the writer is making here was most timely. Because implicitly what he's saying to them, listen, you're thinking of returning. Watch those patriarchs. If they were thinking of returning, then the opportunity would have presented itself. He's saying to them, in effect, if you are thinking of going back into Judaism, if you are thinking of turning your back on Christ, going back to Judaism because you're facing persecution, don't even think of it. Don't even consider it. That's, that's effectively what he's saying to them. Why? Because what we think on, what we muse on, The more we think of the temptation, the more we focus on the urges, it's the greater the intensity of the temptation is going to be to give in to the temptation. What he wants them to do is what? Continue look to Christ. Keep looking to Christ. Keep focusing on Christ. And oh, beloved, in Scripture we find painful examples, painful examples of Individuals who became enamored with the world, in some instances returning to the world only to their spiritual defeat. And all of these examples highlight the need for us as Christians to adopt and maintain a pilgrim, a stranger mindset. Going all the way back to Genesis, we have the case of Lot's wife. Clear warning the angel of the Lord had given Lot's wife in 
Genesis chapter 19, verse 17, was that she should not look back. She was to escape. She was not to look back. She was not to linger in the valley. She was to make good her escape. She was to get out of the region of Sodom. And what do you know? She did the very opposite. And you know the rest of the story. She became a pillar of salt. In the book of Ruth, we have the case of Orpah. You remember, Naomi was heading back to the people of God, back to the land of Bethlehem. God had chastised her. Evidently, these two girls had seen the hand of God at work in Naomi's life. They admired her. They admired her God. When Naomi was ready to leave, you find the, the two sisters, Ruth and Orpah, were following Naomi. Naomi, of course, insisted that they return to their people, return to their gods. And what do you know? Orpah. She returned to her people. She returned to her gods. Can anybody tell me why she did that? Because her mind was in Moab. Her mind was steeped in Moab. Her mind was steeped on her people and her, and her gods. But notice Ruth. When Ruth was given the opportunity to return, you remember how she resolutely stood firm. She said to Naomi, listen, do not beg me to leave you or to cease following you because where you go, I am going. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's the spirit of the right of the Hebrews. What he's trying to get across is this that we are to persevere in faith to that which we know to be the will of God. We have the case of Demas. Demas, you know, as you know, was one of those who, along with Luke, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was with Paul, assisting him in ministry. We see this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, as well as Philemon 24. And yet, by the time Paul was penning his final epistle, Paul was soon to be met with execution. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, with what was presumably a painful heart, he says this in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, do your best to come before winter. He's writing to Timothy. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What a statement. And the tragedy, my friends, is this, that many a professing Christian has turned back, many a professing Christian has gone back to a life of sin, has gone back to the world. Why? Because they fail to adopt, they fail to maintain the mindset of a stranger, of an exile on this earth. That is why the word of God exhorts us in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 3. He says, if you then be risen with Christ, or better yet, since you be risen with Christ, since you are risen with Christ, set your affection, set your minds on things above and not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. We become like what we think. We give in to those things that control our thoughts. That is why the 
the apostle Peter summons us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Stay away. Why? Because that's not your calling. It is not your country. It is not your, your city. You are of a different city. You are of the heavenly city. And so it was that whereas the patriarchs could have returned to their country of origin, they, they, uh, they, they chose not to. Even though they had opportunity, they chose not to. Why did they choose not to? Because they weren't interested in finding a better earthly home. That was not their hope. That was not their aspiration. They weren't interested in making life comfortable here on earth for themselves. They weren't interested in amassing treasures. They weren't interested in earthly comforts. They chose not to return because, not because they were seeking happiness and material fulfillment. No, rather they chose not to return because by faith they had seen a better country. They had seen a better country, that incomparable heavenly city of God. For these people, we could say that in contrast to the attractions of this world, brighter visions beamed afar, to use the words of the hymn writer. Again, we see the great power and working of faith. You see, grounded in the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and not operating on the principle of sight, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, faith by its very nature keeps focusing on the unseen, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. And to the extent that we are focusing on the unseen by faith, our decisions, our ambitions, our values, our whole way of life will conform to the will of God. We would have been fulfilling our role as strangers and exiles in this earth. Let me say by way of challenge, how comfortable are you in this world? A.W. Tozer speaks of this, and he speaks extensively of this. He talks about Christians who can find comfort in this world. They become cozy in this world, and he, he suggests, and I think he's right based on the suggestion of the word of God, that if we find ourselves being at home in this world, comfortable in this world, amidst the ungodliness of this world, then we have forgotten who we are as strangers, as pilgrims, as exiles on this earth. How can we be at ease and comfort in a world of increasing ungodliness. Doesn't it make you sick? I'm sure it does. We see the trends of our time. We see how that good is redefined to be evil and vice versa. Evil is turned around to be made good. And we say to ourselves, how can we be comfortable? How can we be at peace? How can we find or rest in this messed up, ungodly, filthy world as we know it? The life of faith persists unto death. The life of faith is undaunted by the seemingly unfulfilled promise of God. The life of faith affirms 
an afterlife existence. The life of faith involves residing as strangers and as pilgrims, as exiles in the world. Here's my sixth point, and I'm going to run as fast as I can. The life of faith, very important, verse 16, the life of faith commends and endears us to God. The life of faith commends and endears us to God. You see in verse 16b that as a result of the patriarchs desiring and longing for a better country, not having their minds set on their homeland where they came from, verse 16b says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Next to, the, to this part of the verse, there in verse 16, next to these words you could write Hebrews 10 and verse 38. What does Hebrews 10 and verse 38 tell us? My righteous ones shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The point is, as regards these men of faith alluded to in verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God because theirs was a persevering faith. Theirs was a faith whereby they not only desired but relentlessly pursued the things of God over and above the attractions and allurements of this world. Against all odds, these people pressed and persevered for that which pleased God. They were not intent on gratifying themselves in this world. They were not looking for prestige in this world, for power in this world, for possessions in this world. They were seeking God as their priority, the interest of God as their priority. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because even the face of challenges and even what appeared to be unfulfilled hopes. In God's promises, they resolutely, stout-heartedly persevered, remaining where God had placed them. Even though Abram was a stranger, and even though he had right to the land because God had given him the land, God sent him there. He lived there. How? Dwelling in tents. Moving around from place to place. He, 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 he. he had no, not much rights. And we have to recognize who we are in this world. That's the, that's the thrust of, 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 of our text. God is not ashamed to be called their God because of such marvelous display of sustained faith. God was greatly pleased with them. Beloved, God is greatly pleased when we are determined, when you and I are determined to set our minds, to set our affections, to set, on our, set our hearts on those things that please him. He is delighted to be called our God when we resist the urge, when we resist the temptation to return to those things, to those loyalties we had formerly given up for the sake of following him in the first place. He is pleased with us when we put him first. Because that, you see, speaks volumes of our love for him, of our desire to honor and glorify him. Now, here's a sobering question for you to consider to use the language of the author. This is not my language. This is the language of the author of the Hebrews, and I'm just simply asking the question. And the question is, is it true of you? Could it be said of you 
that God is not ashamed to be called your God. Or vice versa. Could it be said of you that God, and I'm challenging myself as well, could it be said of you, could it be said of me, that God is ashamed to be called our God? You say, what do you mean? And here's the question. What is it about your life as you know it right now? Your professed faith in him that is dishonoring to him and that is displeasing to him. Let's get more pointed. The question is, have you been flirting around with the world? Have you been fraternizing with the world? Have you been cutting corners with God? Have you been making compromises? Do people around you know that you're a Christian? You see, this is where that, are you standing up for him when you should? Or, because of the pressures of our culture, and you can't afford to take your stand for him, you're silent when you should? We're not talking about being perfect, beloved. We're talking about this matter of carelessly, consistently living a life that's suggestive of friendship and fellowship with the world. People are talking about this and that. You say, I don't want to get involved because I don't want them to think this of me. I don't want them to think I'm hateful or bigoted. When all the while what we are simply doing is dishonoring and displeasing God. These heroes of the faith lived in faith. They died in faith. And they died for the faith. God is not ashamed to be called dear God. Let me close then with some applicatory principles. Some applicatory principles that we can glean from this passage. And they're really by way of summary. And the first is this. That instead of being enmeshed in this world in which we are strangers, we should be engrossed with heaven of which we are citizens. Instead of being enmeshed in this world in which we are strangers, we should be engrossed with heaven of which we are citizens. Here's the point. Because we are strangers in this world and strangers to this world, we should not become acclimatized to the taste, the values, the outlook, the ambitions, the goals, the values of this world. We are to be different. I'm not saying we're not to be ambitious and we're not to seek good jobs, seek good education, but these must not be the be-all and end-all of our lives here on earth. What is to be the hallmark of our lives? Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The bottom line is this, beloved, we're not here to stay. This world as we know it is marked for judgment. This world as we know it is coming to an end. The big question is, what are we going to take with us into the next world? That's the point. What are you building right now? What am I building right now? What are we living for right now? What are we holding on to right now? And let's ask ourselves this question. Are we going to take that into the next life? The only thing, beloved, we take out of this world is our relationship to the Lord Jesus, our salvation. The legacy we have left behind in terms of who we were as men and women 
God. Secondly, second principle we gather from this passage, even with firm, persevering faith in God, some of our desires and prayers may never be answered on this side eternity. We mentioned that earlier. These men and women died in faith. They died with this attitude of tenacity, with this attitude of not giving up, still believing God, even though they did not see the promises. What will stop you from praying? What will stop me from praying? Disappointments, people disappoint you, hurts you, suffer. What will get us to stop? We need to ask that question. What will get us to stop serving God? It's a serious question. Some people stop serving God because of reversals in life. A broken family, a broken marriage. Health crisis caused many people to just give up. Thirdly, and finally, even when the fulfillment of God's promise seems distant and do not appear to be forthcoming, we should still trust God and we should trust him with a joyful assurance that his promises are as real as they are coming to pass. God's promises are as real as their fulfillment. Why? Because of God's character, because of who he is. He cannot lie. Take this down to the matter of our salvation. Has God saved you? He who had begun a good work in you will continue to perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Has God promised to take care of you? Yes. It doesn't mean you might have plenty and all that you want and all the comfort, but God is going to protect you. God is going to see you through. Oh, may God help us to have this faith. Characterized here in the book of Hebrews. You're not saved. Then you need to come by faith to Christ. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple faith and trust, not of works. Faith and trust in the crucified one. May God Bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.